0: Amen. Amen. Thank you, Steve, for that prayer, and thank you, Praise Team, for that. If you can't, can't preach after that, you can't preach. I tell you, that was good. That was good. Just wonderful. And that baptism, just wonderful to see some of these young teens and teenagers uh, identifying through water baptism in their walk with Christ and publicly saying, I'm, I'm His. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And if you haven't been baptized by immersion and you've been saved... I would encourage you to do that, to get that settled in your heart because that's the next step, first step of obedience after you are baptized or after you are saved is to be baptized by immersion. And so that's why we do that at this church and it's a wonderful thing. Take your Bibles, if you will, today to Mark chapter 11, Mark chapter 11. It is good to be back with you. I was in Dallas last week uh, out of town. I, was, I actually did a wedding down there as well and um, one of our former members got married, asked me to fly down there and so I flew down there and did that wedding it was only 103 the day of the wedding it wasn't too bad then the next day 104 so it was a little bit hot a little bit hot down there but uh, I'm glad to be back feels like it's come this way on the heat that's for sure but um, anyways um, I want to talk today about a sermon I've entitled it's my house it's my house and this comes from Mark chapter 11. Let's stand together. I'm going to read verses 12 to 21. On the next day when they had left Bethany, he became hungry, seeing at a distance a fig tree, a fig tree in leaf. He went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And he, when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. When they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple, he began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a robber's den." The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they would go out of the city. As they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. We'll stop there with the reading of God's word. You may be seated. You know, there's some things in your life that ought to make you angry. And in making you angry, they ought to be used for God. Uh, for example, if you've seen The Sound of Freedom. How many of you have seen The Sound of Freedom already? Okay, a good a good many of you have seen it. If you have not seen it, you definitely want to go see it. Um, it's a very moving film. I think it made an indelible mark on my heart and life, my heart and mind, too, just... The sense of you know the same passion I feel for fighting abortion and preserving lives in the womb is the same passion I feel for uh, trafficking of children. Uh, the one that stu- the fact that stuck with me is that we have more slavery today in human trafficking than we did in any time in the United States history, which is absolutely hard to fathom. Where are the where are these thousands and thousands of kids being? Uh, put in slavery, and where are they hidden, and how do you expose that? And I felt such a burden and passion for that after I went and saw the movie this past week, and it just kind of, I couldn't even sleep good that night thinking about it. Just how could we as a church be used? I mean, I know we can throw money at things, and that is helpful, and I'm not against that, but I wonder what there are practical things, and I've been praying about that. What are some things that we could actually do? Uh, Three years ago, there was a A lady who worked with child trafficking and was trying to stop it with the Southern Baptists and she came and invited some of the pastors to go over to the industrial park in Kernersville and I went to it and there was about seven or eight of us pastors in the area that went and she showed us one of the industrial park facilities where they were trafficking the children out of Kernersville in our industrial park and getting them to the other states and north uh, other places in North Carolina and I was like right here under our noses right here under our noses, that never really stuck with me like it did when I watched the movie. I just felt so moved by the movie. Uh, it starts out, you feel this deep sadness at the beginning. Then you, then you go into feeling the fear of that child. And then from the fear of that child to um, just an anger comes up inside of you. And that anger just impels you. What could I do? I don't know all the answer to that, but I want us to be part of something more than just money. And so we have done so many things socially in this community that I want to think through what we could do there. And some people have already come up with me some, for some ideas in the last service. And if you've got some ideas, the practical things we could do as well as give money to these kind of things, um, I think it would be worthy to go down that direction because sometimes we're supposed to be angry. And you left the movie with a sense of hope, but yet a sense of anger too. And I think that anger's good. I was reading a passage of scripture that leads into my service today that Jesus got angry. He got so angry, he went into that temple and turned over tables and chased them out of the court of the Gentiles. And so I was um, thinking about that. Well, the Spirit of God brought back something to my mind in a study I'd done through the book of Judges. In First Samuel chapter 11, after the book of Judges, the uh, nations started to unite against again under King Saul. Well, this one king, Nahash of the Ammonites, comes down to this little city called Jabesh Gilead and he said, I'm going to destroy you. There's no way they could have stood up against the Ammonites. And they said, Surrender or go to fight. We want to go. They really wanted to go to war with them. They were cocky people and they just. Uh, you, couldn't, you couldn't talk reason with them. And, and they said, well, let's, the, the people of the city said, the Jewish city said, let's, let's have a, let's have a uh, treaty, let's have a covenant and not, let's not go to war. I said, okay. Uh, Nahash says, well, we'll do that, but I require the right eye to be plucked out of every man in the city. That's the deal. You can have peace, but every man loses his right eye. And so um, the people of the city think for a minute, the officials think and they get together and they come back to Nahash and they say to him, they say, hey, would you give us seven days to see if we could gather some men to help fight against you? And Nahash was so cocky, he said, I'll give you seven days. So he goes, they, they, he, he gives them seven days to find men that will fight with them in that little city and they send a message to King Saul who's now the new king of Israel and when the king of Israel, Saul, heard it, he was His anger was kindled. It started to burn like a fire. He was ticked off. They would ask for the right eye. To ask for the right eye of a man and to pluck it out. Now, is there anybody here who would want to give the right eye? But in their day, it was more critical than it is in our day because you were useless in battle if you didn't have your right eye. You were useless. And so the king knew, Nahash knew, if I take your right eyes, you can never rise up against us because you'll be servants and in destitution for the rest of your life. And so... um, Saul was ticked off at that, and he raised up 300,000 men and whipped Nahash and his army. That's the end of the story, but let me go back now. Something else happened before Saul got ticked off. What happened before Saul got ticked off and said, we'll send men to fight, is the Bible said this in 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 6. And the Spirit of the Lord came on Saul, and he was utterly ticked off. Now that's what struck me in my reading and it kind of fit right with this passage so that's why I use that story to open up today. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Sometimes we think of the Spirit of the Lord coming upon us and we're going to feel joy or we're going to feel peace or we're going to feel happy. Let me tell you something. There's sometimes the Spirit of God will come on you and you get ticked off and you should be ticked off like the sound of freedom is a great illustration of that. There's some things that should utterly kindle your anger. And you're to be like that. And I want to look at that carefully here in this passage because that would, that's what Jesus does. He gets ticked off. So I, I thought about putting this message in the neg- negative. Three things you don't want to do to tick Jesus off. And I thought, that that just makes a terrible outline. Three things you don't want to do to tick Jesus off. So I just kind of toned it down a little. There are three things you must do to function according to your filling. Doesn't that sound more Christian? That sounds more Christian, okay. So let's just make it a little more bland, even though I'll make my points later, okay. Three things every Christian must do. Here we go. Number one, walk the walk. The negative would be, if you want to tick Jesus off, is don't walk the walk. Okay, that's how you can do the sermon if you want to take that that track but walk the walk right here we have in this passage in mark chapter 11 we have jesus walking by this fig tree now a couple things to set the text here one the old testament tells us that the fig tree is a symbol of the religious leaders of israel that's important to note okay i'll give you all the verses on the screen won't take any time to look at them but that's what you know the fig tree is so you have a feel for what's going on here all right, and number 2, this is this cursing of the fig tree is the only miracle in the life of Jesus that is a miracle of destruction. That's important to note, too. The only miracle of destruction done by Jesus of all the miracles he did. Now, I could get into background material on this and I think for the sake, let me just say that Jesus starts walking by this tree and he's hungry. He's going to go into Jerusalem. It's the second day now. He was there on Sunday, went out to Bethany to sleep. The reason he went out to Bethany to sleep and didn't stay in the city of Jerusalem is he was a poor man. His people were poor. He didn't have the money. It's like you trying to stay downtown in a major city as opposed to going on the outskirts. You're going to be able to stay a whole lot cheaper on the outskirts of the city than to come into the downtown and stay in their hotels. And that's the same thing with Jesus. He just didn't have the money, so he'd go outside to Bethany at a friend's house, and then he'd go back into the city. So Sunday, this is the second day, now Monday, he comes to this fig tree, and it has no figs present. And so Jesus makes a prophetic utterance, and he, you kind of just got to feel the weight of this. It's almost like his voice got lower, and he was upset, and he said, may no, may no one ever eat from you again. That's, that's the way, it's a prophetic utterance. It's a curse. That's what I want you to understand. It's a curse being put on a fig tree. And so he curses the fig tree. Now, why did he do that? Why did he do that? The, the, the fig tree, the cursed fig tree, became an object lesson. And the object that it displays is the sin of hypocrisy. The fig tree had all the outward appearance of fruit. But when you picked up the leaves and looked under for the fruit, it was empty, it was barren. And so Jesus denounced the hypocrisy of the fig tree to symbolize the hypocrisy of the leaders of Israel hypocrites you're hypocrites is what he was saying you're making a buck off my house you've screwed up the whole system that's why he calls them whitewashed sepulchers he, he, he has no reserve for the way he treats the religious leaders of israel pharisee sanhedrin sadducee uh, high priest it doesn't matter he has this sense of they're hypocrites They're whitewashed sepulchers. They would get bleach and they would go out to the tombstones and they would bleach their tombstones because they were the biggest and they would make them look shiny white. And If you ever go to that place in Israel to see those tombstones, you can tell the ones that are rich and the ones that are poor by how shiny they are. Jesus said, that's what you Pharisees are like. That's what you Sadducees are like. You're, You're whitewashed sepulchers. You're all bleached and beautiful on the outside, but inside you're full of dead man's bones. That's, that's the kind of uh, chastisement he has for the religious leaders. And so now he curses this fig tree as an outward show of their lack of spirituality inwardly. There's no fruit. There's no fruit. You haven't led my people to me. A matter of fact, you let them away from me. Now, let's just first get to the lesson to us right here. I'll start out with the lesson to us. As Christians, we can't just talk the talk, we have to walk the walk. Nothing ticks Jesus off more than hypocrisy. In me, in you. He he just he hates that. He hates hypocrisy. I was reading a book by Alex McFarlane called The Ten Most Common Objections, Objections People Have Against Christianity. Number four, the church is full of hypocrites. Unsaved people watch Christians go to church on Sunday, then they watch how they act in the week, and they say, there's the show. There's the real them. And so they say the church is full of hypocrites, to which I say, there's always room for one more. There's always room for one more. Yeah, the church is full of hypocrites. The truth of the matter is, I don't think anybody could not claim hypocrisy is being part of their life. The problem is we don't want to be caught in the sin of hypocrisy because we want to avoid that as much as we can, but we're we're, we're fallen. And so there is always room for one more, but the reality is the church is full of sinners. The church is full of sinners. Now, all hypocrites are sinners, but all sinners are not hypocrites. If I claim to do something, then I don't do it. I'm a hypocrite. Okay? that's that's the way you want to see this is that this sin of hypocrisy really ticks off the lord and we ought to be doing everything we can to avoid that in our life so one thing i just want to say to you is let's not pretend to have attained some kind of high level of sanctification that we really don't have let's not be a church like that okay yes at triad we will discipline outright sin public scandals we'll expose them when we have to but in the meantime, we are just a fellowship of sinners, all of us. Let's not pressure one another to become like actors here. The truth is, sanctification is a process, and it works over your whole life. And even when you get done in your whole life, you're not going to be sanctified to the level you probably needed to be. But, but just let that unfold in people's lives. Sometimes you're going to see hypocrisy. Sometimes you're going to see people fail. Okay, If they deal with it well, that's what Jesus is after. Just deal with it. Don't keep living a hypocritical life uh, before him, before God, and before others. All right, that's good enough on that one. Number two, let's go on. Face your foe, face your foe. So walk the walk, face your foe. Here in verse 15, Jesus then goes into Jerusalem after he curses the fig tree. Now, to understand the structure of Mark that I've been teaching you is almost every story in Mark is a sandwich, All right, a ham and cheese sandwich, okay? You got two narratives on the outside, and you got the meat in the center, which is the ham and the cheese, all right? So the outside piece of bread in this story is the cursing of the fig tree. The other outside piece of bread is at the end when Peter says, look, the thing's withered away. It's gone, it's done. See, so those are the two pieces of bread. And in the center is the ham and cheese of this story, which is the cleansing of the temple, all right? So, that's the way you want to kind of see this. So, Jesus is kind of saying there's a link here. There's a link between the cursing of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple, and that's what I don't want you to miss. All right? So, I'm focusing on the cleansing of the temple. Their hypocrisy needed to be exposed. The temple was going to be used by Jesus Christ before his, during his crucifixion on Friday. So he's cleaning the temple where he'll be offered as a sacrifice on Calvary, but the temple veil will be torn in two, and he wants that thing clean before he gets killed. So he's cleansing it. He's exposing the hypocrisy, and he's going to cleanse it because they've provoked him to anger. He is furious. He is furious about what they are doing. Now, if you come into the region. I'm just going to show you a model of Jerusalem so you can see this and understand this. Here's a model that when you go to Jerusalem you can see. It's like this mini city of Jerusalem built and the largest thing is the temple. And that temple right there, the high part is the Holy of Holies. Then outside the walls there is the court of the Gentiles. This is where they would have been selling the animals in the court of the Gentiles. Just take a look at that in that open area there. Now, when you see that and you go to see that, it's, it's hard to really fathom what, how the size of it, but you get a good idea of it when you see the model. But let me just go a little deeper with you. That court of the Gentiles is actually 500 yards by 350 yards. So that's massive. That's massive. You can't see it in that picture, but it's massive. All right? So what I did is I had to take a comparison for you to get this. The court of the Gentiles would be like going to a soccer field complex of 16 fields. So that's how big the court of the Gentiles is. So Jesus, when he goes in to cleanse the temple, he's starting from one corner of 16 soccer fields, and he's working his way around the whole soccer field area to cleanse the temple. So I want you to have that in your mind. This is a huge thing. you got thousands of people in here. Matter of fact, let me just say this so you get this. In 66 A.D., Josephus, the Jewish historian, said there were 250,000 slaughtered lambs on that day. They're all slaughtered at 3 o'clock and 6 o'clock on Friday. So you're kicking off some lambs. You're doing about 171 lambs a minute to kill that many lambs. Now, there probably wasn't 250,000 in 33 or 32 AD, but there was probably 200,000 lambs. So you've got thousands of lambs in this courtyard of 15 soccer, 16 soccer fields, or whatever it was, 4x4, 16 soccer fields. And uh, you've got a huge area of mass things going on here where they're selling uh, these lambs and selling these doves for the sacrifices to these people that are coming from all over the state of Israel. You probably literally have half a million people coming into Israel out of the whole state to get to Jerusalem for this sacrifice. So here's High Priest Annas, High Priest Caiaphas, Sadducees, Sanhedrin, Pharisees, scribes. They have turned this this complex into a stockyard. They have turned the house of God into a stockyard. Now. A Jewish traveler has two problems when he comes into Jerusalem. One problem is all, travels, all travelers outside of Jerusalem dealt in Roman currency, so they had to go to the money changers first to get their money changed from Roman coins to Jewish coins, to what's called the Tyrian shekel. And this is where they first got extorted when they came into town because what they did is they tagged on a little fee a little MasterCard fee, a little Visa fee onto exchanging your Roman coin for a Jewish coin. The money changers. Now you've heard of Visa and MasterCard and that's what's going on here. Right? You just don't see it. You go to the restaurant just pay your bill you thought you paid for your meal. Now you've paid a hit to MasterCard and Visa. I don't know if you know this or not, but the people who make the most money are the people that make a little money in every transaction. Now, I'm not here to jump on MasterCard and Visa. I just want you to understand how this works. Those two stocks, MasterCard and Visa, are magic stocks. That's my term. They are capital-efficient. They're the most capital-efficient stocks that we got going in the United States market. They're capital-efficient. Par excellence. They're number one and two. Why? They got no overhead. They're just gonna take a little bit out of what you got, and you don't mind. They can take 50 cent out, 75 cent out. You, you don't mind. Two bucks. All right, it's all right. It's just lunch. But that adds up over time, and they become a very wealthy organization over time, which they are today. I'm not trying to pick on them because you may work for them, so don't 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 mishear me. But what I am saying is that's what they were doing back then, and they were doing it in the temple. And they were doing it in the court of the Gentiles and they were ripping people off like this. A half a million people, just a little bit at a time from each one of them. The second problem they had is they couldn't bring their own sheep or doves. Because if you tried to bring your own sheep and have the priest inspect it for the sacrifice, he would inevitably find something wrong with it. Tried to bring a dove if you're poor, if you're really poor, you got 25 cent to your name, you would bring a dove. Well, they wouldn't even pass that inspection. So you not only had to go to the money changers, now you had to go pick out an animal in this complex of thousands of animals. And so as you try to pick them out, of course, they're going to get a little hit on you because it's like you going to a professional football game. You're not going to pay a buck for your soda. You're going to pay seven bucks for your soda because you can't bring your own drink into the game. You got to pay their prices. They know what they're doing, okay? It's, it's how they're doing it here. They're, they're upping the price of a dove. That's why Mark mentions a dove, because he's talking about, you're hitting the poor people. And that's what he's ticked off about. So... They all knew, everybody who came to town, the half a million people who came to town knew it was a racket. It's, it's a mafia-level racket controlled by the priests and controlled by the Sadducees and the scribes and the Pharisees and the high priest. It is mafia cartel going on right here. The religious leaders would take the money and they'd take the money they got from these people then they would go buy gold, they would melt down the gold, and then they'd put it in the temple. They had one of the wealthiest temples in the world at this time, because they were taking advantage of people like this. They'd melt down the gold, and they'd put it on the outside of the building. Sometimes you saw those little spikes on one of the pictures. Those spikes were so pigeons couldn't land on the edge, and then the poop fell down on the people when they did that. I, I don't know if I was supposed to say that word in this sermon or not, but anyways, uh, it fell down. So what they did is they prevented, they made the pigeon come to the inside of the temple so they couldn't do it off the side. They had pigeon problems back then, but they made them out of gold. And then they took the rest they would melt down and they would bring it on the inside. Here's a picture of the inside, and they'd make gold plaques and pictures of gold. And, and they'd take the uh, cement tiles out and then they would replace them with uh, one-inch thick, 12-by-12-inch 12 12 gold tiles to walk on. It was, it was absolutely amazing. They were just reinvesting their money into the temple so it could not be lost. The implication of that is not only were they corrupt in their hearts, but now they corrupted the temple by extortion and overcharging people. That's how they built the temple. How do you think temples get built sometimes? They extort, they overcharge. That's why Jesus said, one day that'll be destroyed. One day that's coming down. And they're going to turn it brick by brick, stone by stone. You know why they did that? Because they melted their gold in between the stone. And so the Romans, when they tore it down, they made sure they knocked over every stone to get their gold. I do like what Josephus said here of the priest and the high priest. They loved money, but they hated one another. So you know what Jesus does? I just don't know how to say this, but Jesus flips out. He flips out. It's it's an incredible passage just think about for a minute. The Spirit of the Lord comes on him, and he flips out. He flips out. I I like the parallel passage in John, because when John talks about cleaning out the temple, he talks about the fact that when he cleaned out the temple with him, he took took these... uh, strands, and uh, he's, he's, he goes to the corner of the temple. Can you just see him over in the corner of the temple? And, and the Bible says he starts making a whip. So, he's just, he just kind of fashioning this whip that he's making. He's listening to all the discussion going on, thousands of people, these lambs, and these, all these noises, and, and there's the high priest smiling, man, money. I love money. Don't you love money? And they know what they're doing, They're extorting the people. They're taking advantage of them. There he is. He's listening to laugh. He's listening to all the discussion. And he's thinking to himself, this is a house of prayer. This isn't a place to make a buck. And there he is, making this whip. And I mean, then he just just loses it and he starts whipping, I don't think he actually hit a person, no, there you go, I had it, I was practicing this like, I tried to practice this like the Raiders of the Lost Ark, like Harrison Ford, and I went like this, and I did it too hard, and I hit my own back, it was terrible, I'm a terrible whipper, but I was just trying to do it there, and uh, I just thought about that, it just strikes me, I don't think he hit people, and I don't think he whipped the animals, but I'm telling you what, he shook up those animals, and he got them in a frenzy, and it, this place became chaotic, 16 soccer fields and everybody running every different direction. The animals screaming and noises being made and and, and they're scattering for the doors and everybody's trying to get out of there. I mean, it's just an incredible picture uh, to see the disruptiveness of this moment in time because they perverted the use of the temple. This was the house of God. This was the only place that God knew they could come and pray that's what he wanted to hear. He wanted to hear prayers in the court of the Gentiles. He wanted to hear a man come and need the grace of God. He wanted to come and hear a man need the favor of God, to cry out, for his stinking, sinful heart. That he could bring that sacrifice and find peace with God. And he knew he could pray. It's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful what God designed it for. And he could be assured of that every time he came. That's why it was to be a house of prayer for all nations, not just the Jews, the Gentiles and the Jews. If you did that today, you'd be sued. You'd be sued if you did that today. Why is he doing it? Because he's trying to tell them, I'm Lord of all the earth. I'm the king of the Jews, and this is my house. Get out of my house. It's his right. It's his house. He's cleaning house. That's what he's doing. He's cleaning house before he gets sacrificed himself. He's not going to go to an unclean house. Now, there's lots of ways my mind went on this, and I want to be mindful of my uh, time here. Let me just say the culture. If I look back about 20 years ago in the culture, I I saw this spirit of uh, when I would witness to people, they'd say, who are you to judge me? I remember people saying that. Who are you to judge me? You know what's happened today? I think here today the shift is not who are you to judge me. I think the shift now is so bold. It's like who is God to judge me? Who do you think you are God to judge me? And there's such a spirit of that today that no one can be judged by God. But I'm I'm telling you, he is a God who judges. You'll never know salvation until you start realizing the wrath of God that's against you. You'll you'll never come to that place. There, There has to be this conviction of sin that there really is a wrath to come. And there really is a God that has this kind of anger in Him. And it's really something you want to settle now. You don't want to wait on that one. You want to get this thing right. And so, here is Jesus, God, in His temple, and He has a right. And when they say, Who are you to kick me out? Jesus says, it's my house. It's my house. Get out. Now, what does that tell me? It tells me a couple things. Number one, Jesus isn't always nice. You better know that in your life. Don't get this idea that we have this pacified, meek and lowly Jesus. We do have a meek and lowly Jesus, but we also have a God of wrath in the same person. And it's very important to understand that because I worry sometimes about the campaigns that go on today, like the He Gets Us campaign that kind of wants to take away a wrath God and just have a best friend God. Man, that is not biblical. They had 100 million views five, from the day of the Super Bowl to five days later. You say, that's great, isn't it? No, because it's leaving out the God of wrath. It's leaving out the God of wrath. Listen, you don't have the gospel if you don't got two key things in there, the conviction of sin and the repentance of sin before a holy God. You can talk all day long about just give your life to Jesus. It's not just give your life to Jesus. There's a conviction of your sin before a holy God, and then there's a repentance of sin before that holy God that you recognize, this God's angry at me. This God's upset with me. My sin is blocking my relationship. I need to clean that out of the way. I've got to come to him and repent and be convicted over that and then claim him as my Lord and Savior, and then boom, it shifts. It's just from the God of wrath to the God of love, and now I'm his child. That doesn't happen until you really recognize the whole truth of the gospel. And that's why that's so important. And if you're here and you've not done that, it's so important you understand that it starts with conviction and repentance first before it ever starts with give your life to Jesus. But you've got to have a full story there. Jesus wasn't always nice, all right? Number two, we have to, as God's people, confront people in tough moments. That's why we're afraid to witness sometimes because we know we got to say some hard truths. It's not just he wants to be your best friend. It's not just he gets us. <laughs> no. It's a whole lot more than that. And so that's what prevents us. And we sometimes want to soften a little. He gets us. No. It, it's tough. And it it, it is, is sometimes why we don't want to share Christ because we know what the real truth of salvation is. And that's sometimes the way we don't confront sin with others. We have to do the same thing with Christians. You have to enter conflict sometime with people, and I know you hate it. I hate conflict. I've had to do it, but I've got to face my foe just like you do. I've got to deal with some things, and Jesus faced his foe, and he was willing to do that, and we've got to do that. Jesus flipped out. He's ticked. He's furious but he doesn't do it by sin. He does it without sin. So that's where we got to be careful. When we get angry with something, we got to make sure that anger's in the spirit, not in the flesh. So we got to be really careful on that. You got to really be careful with your anger, but you got to have your anger sometimes. You got to have it. It's good to have it at all kinds of levels. I like what Dane Ortland said, because he wrote Meek and Lowly. While he is a lion to the unrepentant, he is a lamb to the penitent. That will always be true whether you're saved or unsaved. If you're unsaved, he's a lion to the unrepentant. If you're saved but you're not living in the way that you should, he's a lion. If you know there's something you need to repent of, and you need to get that thing clean before God, get that clean before maybe a person, you bring it out and you say, God, bring this out in my life. And he's a lamb. And he's a lamb. But not till then. All right, number three, we'll close it off with this. Clean your clock. I, I, I just wanted that outline to flow a little. Walk the walk, face your foe, clean your clock. Just, made it, just nothing fancy about that, but when you go to another person's field and you beat them on the home field, you say, man, we clean their clock. Well, now I want to talk about cleaning your clock, okay? Let's clean your clock. Here we go. Cleaning your clock. This church is not the temple of God. This is not the temple of God, Okay. You are the temple of God. You are the temple of God. And when Jesus flips out on the temple, sometimes what he wants you to do is flip out on yourself. He wants you to really take a hard look at your heart and say, is there anything that needs to be cleansed inside of me? Is there anything that my eyes, my ears, my mouth, is is there something in my life that needs to be cleansed because I am the temple of the Holy Ghost, and the Holy Ghost is... The Holy Ghost is within me. And that's why it's amazing he says that in First Corinthians. He says, don't you know that? Don't you know that? Don't you know who you are? You are the container for the contents. And God resides inside of you. And he wants everything, these hands and these eyes and these mouth and, and this life, to be surrendered to him. You're not perfect but he wants that process of cleansing to go on in your life. Survey my temple to see if there's something that needs to be cleansed, God. That's my prayer for you. It's just come to God with your temple. Now this temple, this is not God's temple. This is where we come to teach, this is where we come to disciple, this is where we come to evangelize, this is where we come to gather and fellowship, this is where we come to reach out from But ultimately, this is not, it's not these buildings that he's trying to focus on. This is how we do ministry from these buildings, but it's in us. So when we come together as the body of Christ, do you see you've magnified the presence of the Holy Spirit here because he's inside of so many of you. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing to think about. All right, I'm going to wrap this up in just a few minutes. (laughs) God cannot continue to use a dirty vessel. Here's what I'm trying to say to you from the whole Bible's perspective right here in this passage, okay? When he makes something, he forms it. Then he fills it. Then he uses it for a function. Formed, filled, function. That's how God does everything. Formed, filled, function. When he made Adam, he took him out of the dust of the earth, and he made him into a man, but he wasn't alive. God had to go over and, and he breathed into him, and he became a living soul. Now, now he was ready to function as a man because he'd been formed, he'd been filled, and now he could function. That's how everything works in the Bible. And I don't have time to go through that all because I'm out of time. The potter, he takes a vessel. Jeremiah, go down to the potter's house. He takes a vessel and he forms it with his hands. He touches you. That's what you need. You need a touch of God on your life. And he forms you. Then what does he do with that pottery? He fills it. And then you're able to function. The Valley of Dry Bones. Ezekiel prophesy unto those dry bones. And he prophesies unto them and they rattle and they shake and they come together like this army of skeletons and then the muscles come on them and then the skin comes on them and there they are standing as this vast army but they got no life. And then God says, prophesy to the four winds. And he prophesies to the four winds which is a picture of the presence of God and he... He fills into them and they stand as a great vast army which I think is a picture of the battle of Armageddon to come. But nonetheless I'm not going there except for you to see that he formed it, he filled it and then he caused it to function. Pentecost, same way. He formed the church in that upper room. Then he filled the church with the Holy Spirit. That's the presence of the Holy Spirit in you. That's called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He he filled you Filled the church on that day, and then he caused it to function. Peter went and spoke, and 3,000 got saved. This, This consistent theme they all function as a result of their filling. If there is no difference in your filling, then there is no difference in your function. Everything goes back to the filling. You're formed, you're filled, and you function. You function according to your filling. If Jesus Christ is in you, you have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. He resi- You don't need another filling, because when it talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit, it's talking about being controlled then by the Holy Spirit. Being controlled by the Holy Spirit. But that's why Jesus cursed the fig tree. Hey, if you ain't going to function, cut it down. Cut it down. Everything's got to have a function. Every person has to have a function. I gave you kidneys, so your kidneys would function. I gave you lungs, so they would function in your body. I gave you a liver. I gave you a leg. I gave you all those things, so you would function. I formed it. I filled it. You function. You function. That's, that's it. That's why he says not only are you the temple of the Holy Ghost, but you're the body of Christ. And everything, everyone who is in the body of Christ has a function. Formed, filled function. That's important to understand. I don't know if you're the eyeballs. I don't know if you're the kidneys. I don't know if you're the arteries. I don't know what you are, but I'm telling you what, if you're in the body of Christ, you've got a function. You've got a function. And he cursed the fig tree because it had no function. No fruit. He cursed the fig tree because it had no function. It wasn't making a connection anymore to produce fruit. No function brings a curse. He cursed it. If you ain't gonna function, I'm gonna cut you off. It's heavy stuff. Break the connection, you lose the supply. If you lose the connection, you lose the blessing. You lose the blessing. Okay, here's what I'm saying today, because I'm done, and a little longer than I had hoped to. Sometimes you just need to come to God, and, and I want to say this very carefully, okay? Because I want to make it simple. God, I'm your child. I'm saved. But sometimes I'm not controlled by you. Let's just make a simple prayer, okay? Breathe into me again. Take control of me again. Just breathe into me. Just show me what I got. Show me what I could do. Show me what I could be. Just breathe into me again. That's a simple prayer, but that's the prayer I have for you today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth. God, my spirit has been stirred over this. It started with that movie. It went on with my study this week. And I want to function. I want to continue to function in the things I'm to function in. And I want these people here to function as your people in the body of Christ. Don't know what they are. Don't know what their part is, but they got something there to function. Lord, help them to do that. Stir them. May they just pray simple prayers. Breathe into me again. Control me, use me for your purposes. If you're here and you've never received the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, today may be the hour that you need to say, Jesus, save me. My sin deserves judgment. The conviction of sin has overcome you. You want to repent of that, you want to turn from that, and you say, this sin disgusts me, I'm sick of my sin. I'm sick of my selfishness. Jesus, you died for me on a cross. You cleansed that temple so you could go as a pure sacrifice. I put my trust in you, my faith in you. Save me. Father, take this message now tilt in each of our hearts. Help us to think it through carefully, to apply it to where it can best be used for the furtherance of the gospel. May we represent you well as we go forth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. We're going to sing with the praise team. There's a need in your heart. There's a breathing that needs to come over you. You come today. The the altar's open, open. Let's sing.